BBCC episode 72, my realization of the day. Nicki Minaj once said on Kanye West's track, Monster, Forget Barbie, fuck Nicki cause she's fake, she on a diet but my pocket's eating cheesecake, and I'll say Bride of Chucky, it's child's play, just killed another career, it's a mild day. In a song full of dudes, the single woman understands the assignment just a little bit better than everyone else, aka female directors in the horror genre. Let's talk about that. Hello, hello, welcome to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, a podcast very high on horror movies. I am your host, Devon Taylor, aka underscore Daddy Disco, and sitting across from me virtually is my co-host, Mr. Garrett McDowell. Hello, hello. Together on a on a rare Monday night tonight. We got the we got the night vibes going on. Is this our first night episode of the podcast? Yeah, I think we pretty much exclusively have recorded in the daylight. So yeah, we got um some because this is a a special episode. You know, we got to have the extra chill Monday night vibes, and it's rainy outside too. It's actually perfect. Today's been the perfect Monday. Yeah, is it going to be like, ooh, it's like spooky Monday night kind of put on a horror movie vibes, or are we just all going to be completely exhausted? I guess time will tell. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling probably a little bit of both. Um, <laughs> we've, we've all had a very busy weekend. Lots of things have happened this weekend. Um, yeah. But I'm very excited for this episode. So um, it is a fifth Monday, or um, well, for the episodes, it's a fifth Tuesday because Women's History Month definitely deserves five episodes for the month. And um, I had a blast going through the Slumber Party Massacre series this past month. Not gonna lie, I was a little worried about it when I picked it. I was like, is the series, you know, good enough? And like, are we gonna have enough to talk about through all the episodes? And uh, we definitely didn't. I had like way more fun with the series than I thought I would. No, this past month has been really uh, was a fun journey because you and I were this, this uh, complete series of films was something that was totally new to both of us. And so it was like really fun to be able to dive into these films and explore them for the first time uh and yeah i thought our conversations were a lot more layered and complex than i certainly gave these movies credits for so i'm excited to cap this uh this uh in-depth month and this uh this uh great month of talking horror with uh, a great discussion with some great people yes we do have a couple guests waiting in the wings they are returning guests actually they're actually the very first guests that i ever had on the blade blunt cinema club uh when we talked the Chucky series um, like a year and a half ago, way back when. Um, so I'm happy to have two guests joining us today. One is a writer for Slash Film and a producer on the upcoming documentary Mental Health and Horror. The other was voted Best Bartender of Cleveland, has her own <laughs> book of queer cocktails, and together <laughs> they host the This Ends at Prom podcast. BJ and Harmony Colangelo, welcome back. Hello, Hello. thank you for having us back. How much the Child's Play series has changed since we were on here last, huh? Right. Oh, I know. I mean, the <laughs> the series, I mean, so much has changed in general. I mean, you guys are now out here in Los Angeles and you guys are just uh-huh. killing it. Like a lot is going on. And um, even before uh, you guys came on last time, you guys uh, had not started uh, This Ends at Prom just yet. 
Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so much. And I mean, you guys absolutely like killed on a podcast. I listen every week, not just saying that because you're on here, but you guys know because <laughs> I tweet about you all the time about it. Well, and everybody should listen to our episode on Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging to hear you talk teen girl movies with us. Hey, I'm I'm always a uh, I'm a goth teen at heart. Like, let's be real. <laughs> I th- I feel like that's what I've been trying to embody. Like, as we went through the Slumber Party Massacre series, I was like, I'm gonna approach all these movies in this journey as a teen girl. So I was channeling you guys. Beautiful. I love to hear it. <laughs> yeah. So I um uh, because there were only the four Slumber Party Massacre movies, and I was like, what are we gonna do for this fifth Tuesday? And uh, I just kind of wanted to have a um, conversation, not specific on a movie, but on, um, because it's not only uh, Women's History Month, but uh, Women in Horror Month as well is celebrated. And, um, you know, women kind of own the horror genre. Um, I mean, I don't think that's an understatement, at least not in my eyes. So I want to uh, kind of break down some different bits within uh, the genre as far as uh, female directors go, the role of women within the horror genre, how that's changed over the years, stuff like that, and uh, our favorite final girls. So to start off, I want to ask everybody, what is your favorite horror movie directed by a female or non-binary director? We'll start with uh, Harmony. Ah, oh, shit, we started with me. Okay. <laughs> um... I was at work today and I don't have letterboxed and I probably should have letterboxed because I'm the worst person at actually keeping lists of things in my brain. So I was in the middle of my shift texting BJ going, BJ, what movies do I like that are directed by women? I can't remember. (laughs) And she went, well, here's like 10 of them that are probably your favorites. And I'm like, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm a I'm a big fan of Black Christmas Miss 2019. Honestly, also, obviously, 1974, it's perfect. But huge defender of 2019's Black Christmas. But if I have to pick up my favorite horror movie directed by a woman, like, Catherine Bigelow made Near Dark and Near Dark fucking rules. So, like, <laughs> how could it not be? Yeah, Near Dark was a popular one on uh, on the Twitter today. Um, Near Dark is, I mean, is, is such a big one. And in Black Christmas 2019, even though I was not a big fan of the film as well, but it it, it was it's definitely a series that just made sense for um, it to be a story taken on from a female perspective. So, like, what do you mm-hmm. think that um, Bigelow brought to Near Dark in that aspect? See, that's a great question because. You really, it's, there's so many things to compare Near Dark to versus other non-female-led films, which is that this movie is obviously, like, not a Western, but absolutely a Western, mm-hmm. uh, a very masculine, a very, a very rugged genre of films, and yet this is a tragedy about love and feelings and pain, and there's a feminine touch to that. This is also, obviously, a vampire film. And vampires have always been gay. Vampires have always been uh, effeminate. Mm-hmm. But like, these are also like hyper-masculine vampires who also have feelings. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that we would make fun of as things went on into the 2000s in particular. And I just, I would love to own it. It's like one of those specific physical media holy grails, which is the horrible Twilight cover of Near yes. Dark. <laughs> 
because hey it's it's super bleak it's super tragic but it's about love and it's about vampires being sensitive sort of and having feelings it makes sense and also it's one of the most wildly baffling things i've ever seen for a physical release so i i think that there's just uh it would be really easy for this to be like i don't know from dusk till dawn or something Mm -hmm. but it's not uh don't get me wrong i love from dusk till dawn I'm, i'm a big fan of any like showdown in the american southwest type film like like tremors or from dust till dawn or near dark or just anything that involves trying to just hold out the night it's fantastic but yeah when you compare it to other things in its in its sort of specific genres there's there's a lot more characters and vulnerability in this film specifically than its contemporaries yeah, and I mean, I think with cow- like when you think of westerns in general, you know, that is always kind of thought about as a very masculine movie genre. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your it's your grandpa's favorite movies to watch, and I feel like if you know you take that western formula and then bring in vampires, uh, I feel like a male director if they didn't bring in that like vulnerability, it it wouldn't have. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be as layered, but it also wouldn't like feel correct for vampires like you know because vampires do need that um that feminine touch to them as well so i love that definitely i mean in in all honesty if it had been a guy in charge of that film it probably would have ruled in the way that like something like robocop rules where it's just like oh this is just machismo and it's violence and it's fantastic and fun and it probably would have done a lot better because near da near dark like famously bombed unfortunately so it probably would have been beneficial in a lot of senses, but it would it have been a better movie? Would it have been as well-written or well-directed of a movie? Probably not. It just would have been fun and successful. And I guess that's just where you decide to judge quality. And, uh, and what about you, BJ? What'd you, what'd you bring? All right. So I'm a real easy mark on this one. It's gotta be Jennifer's (laughs) body. Um, I went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to like push up my hipster glasses and like find some really cool indie movie that no one's heard of. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm just going to own my shit. (laughs) I love Jennifer's body so much. And it is a movie that is impossible to make without having a director and a writer who understands the complexities of the the very famous line that Amanda Seyfried says as Needy Loves Nikki of hell is a teenage girl. It is such a specific form (laughs) of hell to go through and it's handled so just exceptionally. Um, I love, I love this movie with all of my heart and to further prove why like it has to have a woman director, Jennifer's body failed because people didn't know how to market it correctly. They tried to market that movie for to boys and they showed up and went, this is not what I was promised and I hate this. And then that meant people thought the movie was bad. And it's like, no, the movie isn't bad. It's just not what you thought you were getting yourself into. And now you hate it. Or it's a movie you can't relate to. So now you hate it. And Jennifer's Body fucking rules. It I love that we describe these both of our favorite movies as they fucking rule. <laughs> Well, they do, and they fucking rule in very different ways. Like I love, like Near Dark. Is, oh, no kidding. <laughs> like Near Dark is one of my all-time favorites as well. And Near Dark came out right around the same time as Fright Night, which is my favorite movie ever made, and The Lost Boys. And it is so anti those two movies. It is the mm-hmm. the 
the equally as queer vampire film, but the one that isn't camp. And I think that's why people rejected it. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, like Jennifer's body is just so awesome. Like it just, <laughs> just captures everything that I love. It's funny and it's very violent um, and it's bright which is something that I wish we had more of in horror. Don't get me wrong. I love, I love a good, like dark and stormy. That's great too. But when you get something with hot pink and it's still scary, like show me a man who can do that. Just kidding. It's Dario Argento. We already know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's something, there's something about what, when it comes to, um, you know, films that kind of miss out when they're not marketed um properly you know and it sucks that it seems that that happens a lot with female directors in horror i mean especially Mm -hmm. like i i loved uh what you guys kind of went into in the um twilight episode of this ends up problem with you know with um how things shook out with christina hardwick so it's like imagine if like if near dark or jeffrey's body had like an original ip behind them already and then you know if mm-hmm. they you know and then weren't marketed properly but then still kind of had mm-hmm. you know that kind of success so yeah um i'm so thrilled that both of these movies have maybe you know initially didn't quite strike that chord with audiences that maybe uh, the producers in mind or had in mind but i'm so glad that both of them have grown such a passionate fan base uh and i swear every year at halloween time somebody else discovers jennifer's body or you know mm-hmm. a certain image or gif or whatever just kind of circles that makes the rounds on on twitter and it makes me happier and happier every time because I, I love both of those movies <laughs> uh for my answer here i i know what uh, devon is picking he has my actual answer so i'm going to give like maybe like a, <laughs> a secondary answer here i don't want to steal his thunder uh but a recent female directed film that i've really loved uh was 2016's raw by julia Dacarnu. uh this was a film that really was something that just physically and like emotionally had like a like a elicited a response to me uh the film is grotesque but also really beautiful uh and really poignant uh, but also being like a very effective kind of disturbing horror movie in a way it's got this it walks this very odd thin line of of being something that's really upsetting to watch but also something really relatable uh and and really beautiful and i think julia uh brings uh, a, a feminine perspective to, to the film and to these characters about the the horrors of of you know, entering into uh, the age of puberty and the age of boys and sex and trying to find out uh, who you are and you're of that age to where other people kind of around you have maybe a seemingly better idea of who they are, but you're kind of blossoming into that. You're trying to discover yourself sexually as well. Uh, and it's, it's, it's such a, it's, again, it's such like a beautiful movie, but it's also very, very disturbing, <laughs> really gross. <laughs> um, it's it's incredibly well acted, incredibly well shot. Um, and Julia Dockernew is, you know, uh, Devon and I have kind of a running joke on here about Titan, and <laughs> it's the most talked about movie that we've never reviewed on this on this podcast. Um, <laughs> it'll happen one day, guys. It'll, it'll happen one day. <laughs> um, uh, even with that film, that was not my, uh, not maybe as what I wanted it to be. Uh, she still continues to prove to be a director who. Uh, is is exciting and doing new things, doing inventive things, things that I don't expect to see, which was absolutely the case with Titan. Watch that. It was like, <laughs> oh shit, was that different than I was going to, or that I was kind of expecting here. Um, and and anything that she continues to work on in the future, I'm I'm thrilled to go see. And a lot of that is due because of Raw and how how uh, impressed I was here and how I felt like I was truly seeing something new. So yeah, Devon, you do have my answer, but I think uh, the next best thing for me is Raw. 
Yeah, I, and it sucks because Raw we covered like you know that was like one of the last episodes before you came on to the pod that we did. I missed it so by that like much. you you missed it by just that much <laughs> to get to talk about Raw and um, but yeah, like um, I one thing I did mention that episode with Raw is and and the difference you know that I've seen between Raw and Titan is you know Julia has this ability to make a movie like Raw where I mean even though it does like affect me and I I do very much enjoy it and the filmmaking is all there. I, it is. Mm-hmm. It's one of those movies. I feel like you know, it is made specifically for women that have these certain experiences that I just have never experienced. Yeah. I never will experience, and mm-hmm. you know, so it's like I feel like that's like that like missing link. Whenever I don't like Ron, that's not a knock against the movie. That's just yeah. um, a, a testament to being able to create something like so specific versus yeah. to town. Like is like feels like it could be for anybody. Like in like yeah. it, and it mm-hmm. so like the way that she can kind of do both of them is um, just like incredible. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes about uh, the you know the the magic of filmmaking. Roger Ebert described movies as empathy machines, and it's because of movies like Raw that I it's it's so great that within the horror genre we can have something so odd and so gross, and then but also tap into these human experiences and things that I won't be able to experience. But because of films like this, I feel that I am just a little bit step closer to maybe understanding someone else's perspective or being able to put myself in their shoes as close as I can. That's uh, it's, it's the power of, of, of filmmaking. I think Julia really uh, uses that to its fullest potential in this movie. Yeah. And so with my pick, um, which I guess would have been your pick, but um, it's, it's <laughs> one our of my, pick. our, it's our pick. Well, you originally, um, I guess, because before you saw that I meant horror movie, you, you'd put the matrix yes. and I was ready to give you a, I was ready to be like, you know what? I could, I could see the matrix as a horror movie. I, had I don't, yes, I, I didn't see the horror specifically, which I guess makes sense. Cause we are on a horror <laughs> podcast after all, uh, but I could see the argument for the matrix. Uh, but yes, I just thought it was film period. So the matrix would be my answer. Uh, but for a horror movie, Devon, you, you picked uh, one that we uh, both have a mutual love for. Yeah. Um, American psycho, uh, directed by Mary Heron and co-written, by Guinevere Turner is um it's it's so I mean one it's a perf- near perfect movie for me I just adore mm-hmm. it to pieces everything about mm-hmm. it and what's interesting about it is I mean this is such a like when you read the book and like this story like never in a million years would you imagine a woman directing this movie adaptation you know and she was so passionate about it and like you know they they tried to they tried to replace her like even though she was the one with the rights and like they tried to make casting decisions overhead and she was like no I'm I want Christian Bale I'm sticking to it fuck you guys like I mean it was this very arduous process that she like really wanted to like there were there was even people writing about her calling her misogynistic for wanting to make this film and and the the movie and its premise and stuff wouldn't work in a film adaptation like if it wasn't handled the way that she handled it like it's funny like a movie kind of that came out similar around that time is like you know imagine if you know if a man would directed american psycho people would be idolizing patrick bateman the way that they do like tyler durden like imagine oh oh, definitely you know so it's like imagine if uh you know fight club great movie and stuff but like the way that that character is handled in such a way is like one of the missteps of the movie versus with American Psycho, you know, Mary Heron is displaying this character and making it, you know, fully apparent what you should feel about this character and how, you know, the disgust that you should feel towards him. 
Um, and then also, you know, still portraying, you know, these heinous acts mainly committed against women, but in a, in such a non mean spirited way, or it didn't feel exploitive or or it didn't again just didn't have you on Patrick's side in the slightest so what she was able to do with that story is like uh, you know even one of the ones that I'll say is like the movie better than the book kind of scenarios Mm -hmm. I agree with you completely on the movie being better because to me I feel like having a woman handle what is such like a blatantly like masculine story and like it's an assessment of masculinity but to have somebody who is oppressed by masculinity be the one making the commentary just makes it so much smarter. And mm-hmm. I'm right there with you with like the Tyler Durden thing. Like the worst mm-hmm. thing about movies like Fight Club, which again is a good movie, is that people took the wrong things mm-hmm. from it. There aren't a lot of people that take the wrong thing from American Psycho. And I think it's because that perspective was critical from Jump Street. Like never in a million years was Mary Heron like you know what we should we should make sure the audience feels seen in Patrick she was like no he's a he's a ghoul <laughs> like make sure you know that yeah yeah it's still uh it baffles me that I, I meet a lot of uh the kind of proto film bro kind of guy you know and they they idolize him the same way they do with Tyler Durden uh, Tyler Durden as well as Jordan Belfort uh from the Wolf mm, of Wall Street yeah, yeah, yeah. even though even yeah I know even though Wolf of Wall Street is also a movie that's like hey guys this isn't a lifestyle you want to lead it's like a pretty <laughs> cautionary tale American Psycho I think still despite the fact that it still is pretty overt about that I, in my experience, have found that a lot of people still kind of take the wrong idea from that movie, which is so unfortunate because, like, I feel like sometimes I have to, like, whisper that I love this movie. I'm, like, actually really like American Psycho, but not for the reasons <laughs> that you guys do, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, yes, I, I adore this film. Echo everything that uh, Devon was saying. Um, uh, not only a takedown of masculinity, but capitalism, especially, like, Reagan-era capitalism. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the materialism that that was so pervasive during that decade decade and you're right Devon like the 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 violence against women is very intentional uh and it's it's pointed but not at women in the way that a lot of uh, horror films can do mm-hmm. uh but it's pointed at men and kind of the predator nature that a lot of of men can take and the uh, the possessive uh, the possessiveness of a a lot of men especially men in power and men with wealth and white men as well uh there's there's a lot going on in this film and i wish people dove into it more than hey he's handsome and he's ripped and he's got a nice house or apartment or whatever (laughs) um but yes i'm I'm glad that this film has uh still managed to to find people who are willing to engage with it beyond uh this weird uh, idealization of patrick bateman which is beyond me but i digress (laughs) Hey, people having poor media literacy is not the creator's fault. Like, you cannot make it any more obvious. Yeah, it's a chronic issue nowadays, and I'm not sure what the cure is, but my God. (laughs) Yeah, and and speaking of... Speaking of like treatment of women on film and, you know, how it is handled uh, on or behind the camera will kind of take me into the uh, next topic I want to discuss. So like I was saying in the opening, I mean, I feel like horror, you know, is a genre that, you know, above many others is one that distinctly belongs to to women 
Um, and, and that has kind of gone through an evolution, you know, throughout time of, you know, whether women were being used for, um, you know, the storytelling or whatever purposes in horror to, um, you know, a genre that has been kind of taken back um, by women. So, so kind of where I'm at, what I'm thinking is like, what makes horror so female centric? I think it goes back to just the building blocks of horror as a genre. I mean, Mary Shelley invented science fiction and in turn, like one of the greatest pieces of what we now consider a horror story with Frankenstein. So just right there alone, we have women at the foundation of the very genre. But when you look at horror as a genre historically, women have always been present. And it's one of the few genres of film where it's very unlikely that you're going to see a horror movie that doesn't include women in it at all. Mm -hmm. um, very, very few exceptions to that. And I think part of that is, is twofold. One, um, women tend to make really easy, sympathetic characters for the audience because mm -hmm. we, we are socially conditioned to believe that women need protecting or that we are not as strong or that we are vulnerable. So there's that aspect of it. We get our, our damsel in distress tropes, right? But as horror has progressed as a genre, we then started introducing, you know, characters like the final girl, where the most important thing was showing that not only is survival possible, but even a girl can do it. And, you know, there, there's something to be both criticized and inspired by with that. Um, and I think the reason that women are so prominently present in, in horror as well is, I mean, yeah, you can get into the exploitive aspects of it, like the, the years where horror really was just tits and gore, like that's a whole thing. Um, but you, you have the monstrous femme. People are terrified of women because they expect us to be one way. And when we don't act that certain way, then it becomes terrifying. Then it becomes a horror show. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of different things politically to play with when it comes to women. Every subgenre you can think of from body horror to possession to slashers, aliens, haunted house, whatever. Like there are dynamic and incredible women characters that are vital to, to all of that. Mm -hmm. And not many other film genres give women that autonomy as well as give them something to do like there's range to that um and and I think that that's a, a big reason why women are so heavily incorporated and that's that's on screen in terms of behind the screen it, it gets a little dicier uh women notoriously have a really hard time and I can speak to this as somebody who does also make movies um, we, for whatever reason, we're seen as like not being able to handle the material or what have you. Um, one of my favorite things I've ever heard was a producer was talking about how women can't do horror because they'll get too squeamish around blood. And I was like, you do realize that like most women, obviously not all, uh, <laughs> but m most women bleed a fuck ton in their lives and are very used to it. Um, and you know, obviously not everybody who menstruates is, is a woman and not a women menstruate, but you know, the, the, the general consensus of like, that's such a backwards ass <laughs> right. way of telling women like, uh, you're going to be squeamish around blood. And it's like, motherfucker, I woke up in my own blood this morning, <laughs> like calm yourself. Um, so it is a little bit harder for women to actually be taken seriously behind, uh, the camera, 
there are a lot of women screenwriters that throughout horror history, which I think is really interesting. But as far as directing, we still have a long way to go. Um, and luckily in the last, like, I would say like 10 years, um, mm -hmm. women have really been kind of kicking some doors down and mm -hmm. it's been really wonderful to see. That is that is very interesting, the, the point that you make about that there's been so many female screenwriters versus directors and it, it, that 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 is very fascinating that like the the industry and the genre has always wanted to hear the the female stories but not necessarily have them tell them very interesting yeah i think yeah. part of it is that i think there's this belief that like once they have the script in their hands like oh we can just change it if it doesn't work we can we can do whatever we want to it and then a lot of times they don't actually change it because the story was solid to begin with early on like you you mentioned that early horror it was kind of um you know more about just like kind of the the boobs and gore of it all um it, do do either of you guys can you think of way be maybe where that like um that turning point might have been like um i mean Slum Party Massacre was in the 80s, and that's, like, kind of pretty early on. But, like, do you know, do you think that was it? Or do you think there was, like, at another point where um, there was, like, a reclaiming of the genre? Uh, I mean, I think it just depends on specifically which genre you're talking about, it, like, within horror. If you're going to bring up, like, Slumber Party Massacre, obviously you have to set slashers aside in their own specific category because... Mm -hmm. A slasher film is nothing like Suspiria or, or any other number. It's nothing like Raw. Like these all function yeah. very differently. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's a clear divide. I would just say with like the natural progression of how women are treated on screen, I, I think it just changes with the times. But I certainly don't know precisely when it would be. <laughs> um, I'd say once we got to the 90s, uh, for sure, we started and like slashers fell out of favor, then it started, other things had to pop up and then go from there. That would be my guess from everything that I can think of off the top of my head. So my my thinking of it is twofold. So once the Hays Code was out and I think goes into it went out of effect completely in like 1968, I think. That's right. Uh, we swung really, really hard into exploitation territory. And it was mm -hmm. like, oh, we couldn't do any of this before. Now we got to swing for the fences. Everybody was naked. There was bush everywhere. Like we were just going hard. That pendulum swung so hard. And what ended up happening is out of exploitation, you know, birthed the slasher genre. And the slashers are the horror genre's answer to popcorn films. Like these are the movies that you go on a date night because you can go with your friends, you can have a good time, you can hoot and holler at the screen. Like you're not watching an intellectual movie. <laughs> um, and it's not to like dig on slashers. Obviously we love them, but like they don't require as much brain energy as like a giallo film or, you know, mm -hmm. anything of that ilk. So it's a low barrier for entry. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so taking off of like this exploitation thing, like the the really early foundations of slashers, like they did show nudity and it became kind of part of the formula. Like having somebody who was going to be the slut that dies was just as important as being a final girl. Like you had to have these tropes. They were they were kind of mandatory and people were upset when you didn't have them. And they only started going away uh, for, for twofold. One, because slashers fell out of favor, like you said. So then suddenly this like outlet for 
you know, free boobs and horror kind of didn't exist anymore. Um, but then nudity started being incorporated in ways that were more central to the plot. We started getting like 90s are big on erotic thrillers, which are <laughs> hor- which are like horror adjacent, <laughs> but like it is interweaving sexuality and horror in a way that like it, they, one cannot exist without the other. You can cut a scene out of a slasher of tits and it's the same story. But once you get into the 90s and we get that erotic thriller, it's like, no, 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 this has got the same DNA. You've got to keep both. And, you know, as much as people want to say erotic thrillers are not horror, like, I feel like erotic thrillers were the first brand of the quote unquote elevated horror. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. obviously being sarcastic, but that's what it is. Like, they became a little bit smarter. They became a little bit sleeker, but they still have like that underlying sleaze kind of Mm -hmm. going on with them. Um, So that's, I think, where it kind of fell out of favor. And, you know, once we got Scream, and now we have like meta commentary on horror. Now you can incorporate like nudity back in as like a fun thing to add because we've already acknowledged that like, we know this is a trope. And now I think like we're in a place where nudity and like, you know, any sort of objectification of, of the, the female form um, is used in a way that people are aware of it. It's now used as a tool, either like, we want this to look as like trashy and eighties as possible, therefore boobs, or we're trying to say something with nudity, therefore boobs. Yeah, my mind originally uh, kind of went to, if we're talking about kind of like the foundations of horror, BJ, you're right to bring up uh, like literary examples like uh, Frankenstein, obviously. I think of like the kind of the cin- cinematic foundation uh, with things like Nosferatu, which was, you know, back in the day where they were like, hey, there's movies, right? <laughs> you know, like a technology. Happy 100th birthday, Nosferatu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but they're like, these moving pictures are a smash. Uh, but you have something like Nosferatu and like one of the most iconic images from that is this man like leering over the sleeping woman in her bed and she's like in a nightgown or whatever and I think of the movies like that that do kind of have this delicate female victim character and societally seen as more uh, delicate and, and needs to be protected also think about Frankenstein Bride of Frankenstein all those kind of things and then I think of you know moving into the 50s uh, one of my favorite examples of like female empowerment is Linda Balique uh, which is a, a really excellent movie. I won't spoil mm-hmm. the, the twist here if you guys haven't seen it, but very much has an angle of what BJ was talking about, that when you empower uh, women, it makes them scarier to some people because they think that like emasculates them in a way. And they think that that like when you, you know, uh, view someone else as powerful, you're somehow taking away your own agency or your own power. So you have Uh, I would say a period of movies like that. I also think of um, Sisters, the De Palma movie, movies Mm -hmm. that are giving women substantive roles where they are the purveyor of fear. And then you get something like Halloween that comes out and then Friday the 13th. And these movies that are so cheap to make, super, super cheap to make and are trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator. And if you're looking at, you know, junk food, the the equivalent to that would be nudity and violence and things that are going to attract the most number of people as as possible unless these like, uh, instead of these really contemplative, thoughtful horror movies about um, you know, uh, the, the, the fear of the nuclear family, like with something like the Stepford Wives or something like that. So appealing to this low and lowest common denominator, trying to get as many people as you can. And how are we going to do that? Ask Roger Corman and he'll tell you it's nudity, <laughs> violence, and they'll come and see your movie. 
And then again, that kind of fell out of favor uh, in the in the 2000s. And now it's kind of nudity is being reclaimed in a sense of body positivity. And you shouldn't be ashamed of the, of, of the way that you look and parts of your body. So a lot of female directors are kind of reclaiming that in a way and, and making that uh, a conscious choice in their movie and less of a studio mandate like we had uh, found was the case with a lot of the Slumber Party Massacre movies like we had talked about. So just like the final girl trajectory, which I think we'll talk about later, it really is this long and winding road to get us to where we are now to where as an audience, we are conscious of these cliches and conscious of these uh, these plot points and these character archetypes that you're used to seeing in the genre, but reclaimed in a way that is commenting on the horror genre, is a subversion of expectations, uh, but is still kind of... Uh, entrapped in, in in the foundations of horror yeah and that's the thing with those tropes though is so i'm i'll straight up admit i'm a bit of a cynic <laughs> most of the time so uh there are aspects of like say uh using the final girls as an example or using a damsel in distress kind of female character in an older horror film as an example um, these are tropes that exist to get to a, get to an end goal. Oh, the woman's in the movie because someone needs to. The hero needs to save somebody. The yeah. the the villain needs to menace somebody, and you're yeah. going to elicit more sympathy with a female character because oh my god, we're so worried about women, yeah. except when they die, and then sometimes that's fun because cheap pops. Um, sure. Similarly, the final girls when you have sloppier hands on it, or even like say no women involved, then you have just a formula you boil down to where it's like, oh, well, I mean, you need to have the slutty girl die and you need to have like the virginal girl, like the commentary you get with like Scream or Cabin in the Woods or any number of more subvertive films over especially the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But it's almost emotional manipulation because they have it down to a science and what movie going audiences expect and want and you can you can you know how to get them in the into the theater and you know how to get them to eat out of the palm of your hand mm-hmm. and i i don't know the the evolution has changed to where we are now in in a lot of different areas actually aware of this and rectifying it and being more evolved and being more interesting and being more thoughtful with these tropes to now being like these deliberate choices. Um, I was having a conversation with some coworkers recently, actually, uh, about the movie Fresh, which has a female yes. screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were commenting about how like, oh my God, this movie makes me so uncomfortable. It's so gross. And sometimes just men write movies where they want to murder women. And I'm like, well, actually this movie was not written by men. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, well, it's just too real and it's uncomfortable. So I prefer supernatural horror because this is just too close to reality. I go, that's, that's the point. It, it was supposed to be about reality. Yeah. It's I a cautionary tale. <laughs> it, it's commentary on society. That's what horror has always done. We're just doing such a good job of it now. And it's getting too real and too ugly that apparently it's not fun anymore. It's hitting mm-hmm. too close to home, <laughs> which also as an aside, uh, Devon, thank you for bringing up the only film in our list of favorite female directors and also Garrett, because, you know, you're number two, uh, the only one that didn't involve like carnal women <laughs> feasting on people, because <laughs> that's an extremely <laughs> common trope with like female led stories. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, it, 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 because it seems like it's always on, you know, it, it's always on the terms of, you know, 
it, what I find interesting, like when you go like back through the decades and like when you're comparing like the seventies and the nineties is like this, um, that there is like always like a, a element that women take and embrace and it's something, and it's usually sexually driven or something. And then when you look at the eighties, then it like was when you have these slashers that like, yeah, they're showing nudity, but then it's also, they're like, the thing is the slashers, you know, go for the people that are having sex and stuff. So it's like you get mm-hmm. this like weird pushback. But then, you know, I feel like ever since the 90s, it's always been kind of like a no, no, no. We are going to reclaim the genre one more time again and like kind of yeah. go for these um, more, um, you know, layered stories and taking things with a purpose. And like you said, like using the the meta approach of being like, OK, well, then we'll take the joke and then we'll flip it. and We'll go and flip it on its head. Yeah. And like it, it, it kind of just speaks on like you know the the resilience of uh, of women in general and why and like I think that's why I I enjoy the idea that um women are more the um the representation of like you know like you said like kind of the world as a whole like when you kind of like take a look back on society like in the in this resilience kind of way and it mirrors like you know the way that women have had this hor- journey through horror mm-hmm. yeah um there's a really interesting uh, article that variety had published in 2018 uh kind of looking at the demographics of horror movies in regards to age as well as gender and it should be no surprise to anybody that horror movies cater to a younger audience and mm-hmm. as uh audiences uh grow they're going to also grow with trends of the day and politically where we stand in and younger people are going to have a very different political view of the world than an older generation and they're going to see female empowerment maybe as just a given it's not something that you have to go protest for and younger younger generations are going to grow up with a different ideology um, than maybe their grandparents did and with that their tastes are going to evolve and movies aren't nonprofit; like they they need to they need to fill seats and i think a way to do that is to alter who is telling stories you know keep in mind that you know a little over 40 percent of the audiences are women and they Mm -hmm. they they matter to get into these seats too they're going to be going on those dates as well uh and if they're not able to see themselves in these movies and relate to these characters then what you're going to have is something that you're 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 um you're limiting who who is going to be interested in going to see these movies and you're going to isolate these people which is which is of course not good and, it, and it's just in the sake of art <laughs> having uh filmmakers who are, are telling stories that are as diverse and as reflective as the people who are going to see them is obviously very important as well something that i've been saying for many many years is you know fear is a universal emotion and Mm -hmm. what makes it so interesting though is that it's a universal emotion but it is not universal in what sparks that emotion Mm -hmm. like depending on your lived experiences like certain things are going to affect you in ways that they may not affect the person sitting next to you and that's why in my opinion getting as many people from marginalized identities, regardless of what their marginalized status is and where it comes from, to be Mm -hmm. telling stories in horror is important because what is going to be scary to them is going to be, uh, you know, possibly not scary from somebody else. And if we just have the same people telling the same horror stories over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. then we're not looking at the full 
depth of like what like what is fear like what is scary and that's something that it's just really interesting because like there are you know okay for example is like you just did slumber party massacre right you Mm -hmm. know who the killer is you see his face like very early on in that movie (laughs) it's not a whodunit it's not like um oh my gosh who is this behind the mask it's like yeah. No, we know who the it's, killer is. That guy is just scary because yes, he is a creepy it's that man. guy. <laughs> yeah. And like to me, that is that is such like a women's experience of like, no, 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 I know who to be afraid of. I'm fully aware. I don't, it's not a mystery to me. Yeah. And like that's such like a women's way of existing in the world. And to see it reflected in a slasher, like is is so fascinating to me. I mean, I, I think we see that reflected in, you know, most recently with Promising Young Woman because I think oh, the yeah. people the people that say, oh, that's not a horror movie are usually dudes because they're, they're like, oh, mm-hmm. that's not scary. It's like, yeah, that's not scary to you because that's not what you're living. But like, if for a woman, this is absolutely terrifying and 100% a horror movie. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, definitely. Um, speaking of Promising Young Woman, something that I actually think is worth bringing up that's to kind of piggyback off what BJ was saying is that um, there's a certain aspect of fanfare where it's like you, you get these big wins for either female directors or like if you were if you were to Google like, oh, best horror films directed by women, it's usually like the same 15 movies over and over again uh, yeah. for everyone's list. And don't get me wrong, they're really fucking good movies, but maybe not the biggest pool to pull from. Um, but you get these big wins. And especially when there's buzz around it, like a, a female led story, like Promising Young Woman there is almost this um, pressure, this expectation because you don't get thrown a bone as often Mm -hmm. that, oh, this has to speak to you. You have to love this movie. This has to be for you. And sometimes it's not. And then people lash out hard in the opposite direction. Um, There was a lot of people who, a lot of women who did not like Promising Young Woman because it didn't speak to them specifically, but it also spoke to a lot of people. I I'm going to speak for BJ and say it. She loved it. I also loved it. It spoke for me very loudly. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So, but there's this almost, um, you can't make everyone happy and you shouldn't be trying to, which is why you should be making more films for different types of women. Um, A movie that doesn't work for me as an example is like Midsummer because I've never been condescended to and treated like shit by men the same way that most women have because I get treated like shit because I'm trans, not because I'm a woman. It's a totally different flavor. Sure. So that movie doesn't specifically speak to me the way I'm like a visceral, like, ah, oh, yes, I want to scream cry with all of my favorite women in a barn. <laughs> like whereas, I, that like, doesn't hit me. <laughs> whereas like that is my, like, that was my big takeaway from that movie was, oh my God, that looks so cathartic. I would love to do that. (laughs) Yeah. So I think there just needs to be more films to cater to different female experiences or even like, you know, non-binary experiences. Ah, fuck it. Honestly, a more variety of even men should get more different stuff going on. Like just make more different movies. That's that's all I want. (laughs) And and, and I wonder, because I mean, I guess I don't, because I mean, I'm so plugged into, I pretty much only watch like horror movies. I don't keep up as much, but like, but when I kind of look at it, like, I feel like horror does do that, give that opportunity more than like other genres do. Like, would you guys agree in that? Oh yeah, I would absolutely (laughs) agree with that. And like, and here's the thing, like, it's still not great. Like the statistics are not great, Mm -hmm. but in terms of 
of horror as a genre and horror is always presented as a masculine genre. So if you look at the masculine comparisons, which means I'm not including rom-coms in this, but if you, <laughs> if you look at the masculine genres of like science fiction, war, uh, <laughs> um, sports, uh, things like that and, and horror, women get way more opportunities in horror than they do in any other realm. And like, it needs improvement across the board horror still has a long way to go but we are doing a lot better than most than most i mean you know jane campion take out the fact that she said some whack shit at the critics choice awards <laughs> but the fact that a woman was even allowed to make a western is bananas to me like i cannot believe that that happened not that i don't think that she's capable of doing it she clearly very much was but the fact that somebody in a studio was willing to let that happen, like that's wild to me um, because so frequently, like we just get pushed out of, you know, genres that are viewed as being more masculine and horror is the one that's like, no, 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 no. We, we Let's try this. Let's do this, do this differently. And that's very exciting. But I also don't want us to like cling to that, like we're better than everyone else because it's like, yeah, well, the bar is so low, it's in hell. So like, <laughs> we can we can shoot a little higher, guys. Yeah, honorable mention for martial arts movies who also have a lot of great women roles. Thank you. You know, true, 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 true. <laughs> I was gonna uh, say, you know, like you had said, if you Google like best uh, female directed horror films, it's usually about the same, like ten to fifteen movies here, mm -hmm. and I think that is because the pool is is small to choose from. It and it is in hell, but I think if you are looking at like the pie chart of horror versus let's say drama or something like that. Cause I would say that would be a very close second to a genre of film that does give more opportunities to women. I will say that probably for every five dramas you get, there's probably less than 1% of, you know, of them are going to be female directed films. Just ask the Academy mm -hmm. Awards. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think horror, even though uh, not all of their movies are directed by women, um, I think that's even like a smaller portion of in regards to like female representation, because I do think that uh, there's a lot of horror representation of women in front of the camera as well. And we're going to talk about some of our fam fam uh, favorite final girls. And I guarantee probably most of our picks aren't from movies that are directed by women. Uh, and so I, I, I even though obviously more representation by the camera is still so important. I think representation in front of the camera is, is equally as important because you need to be able to see yourself in these characters and, and relate to characters. And as I said, the deceivingly so, I think a lot of people would assume that it wouldn't be as close as it is, but the, the demographics of audiences who go to see horror movies, there's a lot of women who go to see horror movies and mm -hmm. having that sense of empathy and that you can relate to these characters is very, very important. Yeah, well, speaking of final girls, let's go ahead and get into our last segment for the show. Hulk! So, so when you think of horror, one of the first five things that anybody would think about, I would say, it would be like you know, final girls. This the the idea of. You know, when you think of, you know, horror at large, most of these protagonists that you follow are female characters. And, you know, this term is coined, you know, particularly for slasher survivors, but then you can pretty much attribute it to almost any other subgenre in horror as well. Um, so as far as like the the term itself, I mean, I've even, 
you know, I've seen some very sassy articles about like, why do we still call it final girl? It needs to be, you know, final woman. Like, <laughs> does final girl, like, is that still, is that not cool anymore? Final girl is still cool. I even call the main characters, if they're males, I still call them final girls work because it's all final girl. For me, I like the term final girl and I always have. And the reason being is because in a lot of these stories, our final girls are teenagers. They are girls. And I think that you actually kind of devalue the impressiveness of their survival when you're like, oh, they're women, because in your brain, you're like, oh, they're adults. And it's like, no, these are not adults Mm -hmm. in a lot of these cases. These are children. (laughs) Like These are legal children. And uh, to, to see them to see them survive against all odds is really, really impressive. And I think the the problem is because girl is treated as such a dirty word. Like you throw like a girl is like a, the ultimate insult that you can give somebody when, when you're playing sports. So there's a lot of negative connotations with the word girl, but I view the word girl the same way that I do something like fat where like, it's a neutral descriptor. It can be weaponized. But at the same time, so can anything like you if you want to say, oh, they should be final women, then that easily is going to lead into somebody being like, ah, yeah, the woman character like it, it's still going to be weaponized. So I have no issue with final girl. No, me either. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I, I do for the sake of clarity, even when it comes to like, you know, um, where the main character, the final person is a, a boy or a man. Um, I still will call them like a final boy, but that's mostly so that there's like differentiating like, oh no, this is the, this is the way we're talking about this terms of strict. Cause that matters. Like um, how negatively was night Brown Elm street received because it's like a final boy on that one. Like, no, this matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I'm a sucker for when people do cover songs and they don't change the pronouns. So I'm totally fine with calling them <laughs> final girls too. <laughs> Yeah, I, of course, uh, would have no reason to be uh, offended or upset by this, but I'll just say that if if we're looking for uh, representation and these people, these characters given their due, um, I think a hell of a lot of them are pretty impressive and strong characters. Uh, and mm-hmm. so if you think that the name's a little condescending, it's just like, I don't know, man, watch the movie. They kick a lot of ass to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what, like, makes Final Girls, like, cool and, like, what, like, is so enticing about them is, you know, these are... Uh, these very strong surviving characters that you know uh, the audience can kind of put themselves into you know they are the ones that uh, the audience is aspiring to be they want to be brave like Lori or you know they want to be badass like Ripley you know it's like and I think that just as a legacy of Final Girl is super cool Um, Mm -hmm. you know something that a lot of other genres don't have um, but you know, everybody, um, you know, final girls come in all shapes and sizes. So to close out the show, I want to hear what everybody, who everybody's final, who everybody's favorite final girl is, uh, harmony. Oh, we're always starting with me. <laughs> uh, I mean, when I think final girl, I, you can make an argument that it's any, you know, final woman character in a horror movie, but I go slasher because it's the most obviously final girl <laughs> subgenre of horror and my favorite is uh tree from the happy death day series yes interesting pick i i see the thing is like i like other final girls i like them a lot i think they're great however tree is one that is she is cool 
she is confident, she's badass, and because of the narrative nature of how Happy Death Day works, she is able to go from being like the shitty fuck up party girl and then grows over time into a final girl. You know, she she is the character who dies at the beginning of the movie in most movies. And then at the, by the end of the movie, she gets to survive because of the time looping nature of how Happy Death Day works. She's allowed to make mistakes that you aren't allowed. Characters aren't allowed to make mistakes in other horror films. One mistake and you die. But she's mm-hmm. given the opportunity to do that. And when you fail, that gives you an opportunity to grow. And when you grow, you win. She's all about self-improvement and betterment and overcoming odds through perseverance and honestly a lot of stubbornness, but I appreciate that about her. She is a much more direct fighter than a lot of other final girls for Mm -hmm. me because so many of them, it's about survival. So much of her drive is out of like spite because she's like, no, fuck you. You're not going to kill me again. <laughs> and I I love that because spite in that sense is not a, an emotion that a lot of women are allowed to display. Usually it's seen as like petty. It's seen as like mean girl stuff. But like spite is a powerful motivator. Um, like this, you can't tell me what to do attitude is a powerful motivator. It's It's feminine anger. It's frustration. It's so many of these things that a lot of other final girls aren't given the opportunity to display because they don't usually get more than one shot. And that's, uh, that's why I think she's great. And I hope that Christopher Landon gives us a third happy death day. Cause that would make me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Because I was, I was going to let you guys like make your picks before I made my pick. So I didn't want to like take any of them, but tree was going to be one of my, um, Ah. was gonna be my top pick <laughs> as well tree is so great um like i mean just in all the things you know she's proactive she has an arc she has so much charisma she's gorgeous she's all the things uh tree mm-hmm. is everything i very very much want a third one uh bj who is your pick for your favorite final girl so again i went back and forth on this one um i love all of the final girls for so many different reasons, but I'm going to go with like a, an odd choice. Um, Sue Snell from Carrie is <laughs> such a character that I love because, you know, she, she starts out as the a villain. Like she's the bad person. You don't want to be friends with Sue. She's a bitch. And she follows, you know, what Chris tells her to do. And she's incredibly cruel. And, throughout the course of the movie, you know, finally learns to like think for herself and break away from her friends and try to do the right thing, going as far as like trying to prevent what ends up being, you know, the the, the massacre at Bates High School. And she tries so hard to like fix her mistakes, even though it's kind of too little too late. But being able to see a teenage girl recognize the error of her ways and do everything that she can to try to fix it and to to have the humanity of that failure, I think is so beautiful. And then, you know, she comes back for The Rage Carry 2, directed by Kat Shea, directed by a woman, and you find out that she grew up to become a counselor for high school students. Like she, her entire life is defined by her participation in the cruelty of Carrie White and has now spent the rest of her life trying to make sure that never happens again and trying to fix that and, you know, kind of having her own restorative justice moment. And I think that that's amazing. And I love Sue for that. And she never gets credit 
for for doing that and for righting those wrongs or at least doing everything she can to fix it. I appreciate you bringing up uh, Carrie to the rage um, because I, on the last episode, I said that that one was not directed by a female director, but I was incorrect. Someone corrected me on Twitter the <laughs> other day, but now we have it on the record. <laughs> we are all good. My yes, bad, everybody. And it's also an underrated movie. And uh, I don't want to like shill someone else's podcast, but you know, their podcast doesn't really exist anymore. There's an amazing episode of Attack of the Queer Wolf on it where you learn just how much like producers fucked with that movie. And like how it was supposed to be this like humongous, like feminist middle finger, but knowing what Kat still managed to do with it is very, very impressive. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I love Sue Snell. She's great. And she's great frizzy hair. Yeah. <laughs> great underrated pick. And uh, Gary, you took one of um, one of the, the big hitters. Um, was yeah. also a talk about her. So go ahead and tell us your favorite final girl. You know, if, if there was a Mount Rushmore of, of final girls, Nancy Thompson would absolutely be on there. Uh, and, and she is one that I picked and uh, I alluded to it earlier, but the, the, you know, the journey that final girls have gone on uh, since kind of their inception in horror until now to where it's like this reclaiming is, is really long and complicated. And uh, Sean S. Cunningham, who directed the first Friday the 13th movie and is also like, kind of the owner of it now i don't know it's complicated um <laughs> uh he had described final girls and saying that in these morality tales they're the person who kind of embodies this moral code that society allows you to uh that uh, grants you the you know the opportunity to go forward in life and to continue to survive and i think uh nancy is someone who never quite sacrificed uh her 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 morals as a character that didn't give up on her friends and when she had this this um challenge uh, presented into her and uh, an interdimensional demon nightmare monster um she <laughs> didn't cower she uh like stood up against them and actively tried to fight them where some other final girls uh lori strode uh and 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 uh, in particular kind of just didn't die until the end of the movie like there's not this active <laughs> you know she gets she gets him with a hanger a little bit but not as, <laughs> as much as nancy does in the I'm, I'm there with you i'm on the record with that same opinion it's okay yes Garrett. yes um but also i think not only uh, is the first film uh, a great example of a final girl but my favorite uh nancy thompson appearance is in nightmare on elm street three dream warriors and the reason that she's my pick is because of this movie and it's specifically because because of this this trauma that happened to her she doesn't just cower into her home and just wait for 40 years for the big bad guy to come back like uh, Laurie Stroh does or apparently Sally in this new Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> movie which is a discussion for another time she is active and she is out there trying to help people and she makes it her entire life and her career to help others who might be facing something similar to her and she uh, um, uh, you know em embarks on this this kind of heroic little journey that she has here and she's um, you know giving wisdom wisdom to people and offering a lot of knowledge and sacrifices herself to save others. And I just think that other final girls should aspire to be as heroic and as brave as she is, uh, but also try to pay it forward a little bit here, as opposed to, again, just kind of waiting for 40 years for something bad to happen. And instead uh, being, uh, being a resource and being a character of wisdom, uh, Nancy Myers, uh, great performance as well. Uh, and, uh, yeah, like I said, if there was, it's an easy pick because if there was a Mount Rushmore, she would absolutely be on it. But I think that there's a reason for that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think Nancy Thompson because she does get such a a nice little trilogy to really like solidify her character. Um, mm-hmm. you know, is like the most well-rounded final girl as far as like she's very proactive, she's smart. Um, you know, and like you said, like this journey that she goes on is uh, very very nice. Um, and. Yeah. Uh, we already spent a month talking about Sydney Prescott, so I'm gonna not <laughs> say P- Sydney Prescott, even though she is, you know, fantastic. Um, she's ready to square up with anybody. We love her for that. Um, I want to go with um someone that doesn't get talked about as much. Um, I mean, not that the, this isn't a slasher, even though some might say it's a slasher, but um, Kirsty Cotton from Hellraiser. One and two. Um, I love her so much, portrayed by Ashley Lawrence. And because my favorite thing is, I don't know, she feels very realistic because she's she's really not trying to be, like, involved with any of this. Like, she's literally, she's trying to live her life, and she is the most over-it final girl in any uh, horror movie. And yeah. I just love her sass and her attitude because she's just like, Dad, I'm not trying to hang out with you and my weird stepmom. I've got my own place, trying to do my own thing, and then just keeps getting sucked back into, you know, her family's messy bullshit. And is she just doesn't need to be there. And the fact that she is, you know, like not scared at all to, you know, like make sketchy deals with Pinhead and, you know, challenge him and she outwits him multiple times. I love that. Like yeah. she literally outwits him like four different times just like kind of going back and forth and um between the two movies and i just i love her she has a great cry face uh very active great cardio um i love i love kirsty cotton (laughs) yeah i think uh a lot of the final girls you think of the way that they kind of stand up to the bad guy as uh like physically taking them on uh sydney prescott is is one that has definitely done that kicks this dude in the face multiple times (laughs) Um, but it's it's great to see someone who uses their their wit and their intelligence out uh, to outthink them and to uh beat them on a different game because i think that she knows that she yeah you probably can't beat the interdimensional pain demon monster with spikes (laughs) out of his head and you know just with the fisticuffs here so she has to use her brain which i yeah i think kind of puts her in a different echelon in a way Mm -hmm. agreed completely yeah there's there's so many great final girls and just like all the the different things they do why has nobody ever made like just like a a one-off like final girl like fighting game for like ps5 or something like (laughs) you know make it tekken style or like that should be like a a a moral combat like plug-in or something to where it like has like a download of like 10 final girls to play as how cool would that be I want to see, yeah, I want to see Laurie Strode's fatality when she just like stabs a hanger through your eyeball. <laughs> just fatality. That'd be sick. Something I think that that's I really... where she burns a house down on you. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Something that I'm really hoping is that I'm hoping that we eventually get a movie version of the Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix because mm, um, that yeah, book yeah. is fantastic. Apparently, there's supposed to be like a TV series about it. Um, I just think that that would be really, really cool of just like seeing you know, what happens to everyone moving forward. I think that that's brilliant. Oh yeah. Those are some of my favorite, like I always love sequels that like really go into like what happens like after, you know, you've went through an event and like, you know, cause for a lot of movies, it's just like, oh, that's, that's the end of it. And um, I've always mm-hmm. found that interesting. Mm-hmm. That would be a great adaptation. 
But um, yeah, and you know, I I feel like that's a it's a good note to go out on of celebrating some of our favorite final girls closing out Women's History Month, and um, you know, just wanted to kind of have a nice little fun discussion. So I'm uh, was happy to have Harmony and BJ back. Um, uh, where can the people find your guys' podcast? What is this ends up prom about? Tell them all the good things. Would you like me to spiel? Yeah, this is usually your shtick. You're, I figure. You're, you're, the, you, you're the lead things. <laughs> I close out our show with all of our plugs anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, so Harmony and I both co-host the podcast, This Ends at Prom. It is a coming-of-age podcast about movies that are geared towards or about teen girls. Um, so obviously you don't have to be a teen girl to listen or to enjoy them, but that is the focus and uh, it comes from my perspective of somebody who's a big teen movie apologist and then showing a lot of these movies to Harmony, who, uh, you know, was socialized as a teen boy. So she missed all of these. Um, oh, watched Cruel Intentions recently for the first time for me. Yeah, that was uh, that was a hell of a time. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun watching Harmony watch this movie that I was like, you know, I watched this movie as a whole like four times. But I watched that kiss between Sarah Michelle Gellar and Selma Blair about a bazillion Ooh. times growing <laughs> up. Um, so it's it's a lot of fun. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. We do have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the ends at prom. And then you can follow me. I'm a, I write for Slash Film and a couple other places, but I'm on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocita underscore trap underscore tour. I don't do nearly as many proactive things as BJ does outside the podcast because I spend lots of time doing podcast stuff. You edit the podcast, which is a job in and of itself. Oh, God, being a producer is fucking hard. <laughs> but, like, I guess if I have to plug something, uh, yeah, we do horror episodes of the podcast routinely. So, like, they're around. We do horror things and horror adjacent things. So if you, if you want a little bit of that crossover, then we got we got stuff for you. Please listen to their podcast. It is so good. Um, I've listened. I've gotten emotional. You guys do such great, um, have such great great conversations over there so make sure you guys uh go check it out i'll have links to all that in the show description um but so that is closing out the month uh garrett we have a new theme for next month i know or do you want me to do the honors are you doing the honors oh no this was this was your pick this is you do the honors my man okay well let me let me let me tidy up here as i you know dole out the red carpet so next month, April, the fourth month of, of the year, also 420, which is hey. coincides with our little theme here at the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. I thought uh, 420 in April, the month of April, lots of people are going to be getting high, get high enough. Who are you going to encounter? Maybe a bunch of aliens. So uh, the month of April <laughs> that we were going to be taking a look at alien horror movies, uh, not the not the series, uh, but the genre of, of, of sci-fi alien films. Uh, we are uh, nailing down exactly which movies and which people are we're going to have on that. But I'm very excited to dive in to the to the. I, can you do the the Twilight Zone little whistle? The do 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 do. <laughs> oh wow! No, what a uh, that was a bad there. choice. No, <laughs> you're the, you're the musician out of the two of us. Okay. But that Cal. He's like no. <laughs> anyway, anyway, yes, very excited to uh, dive on in there and hopefully uh, rediscover and uh, discover some new movies. 
Yeah, I'm very excited to get into some um, alien horror movies. One, because a lot of people, um, it's kind of interesting when you get into sci-fi and, you know, which sci-fi movies count as horror movies or not. Yeah. Um, But I think all the ones that we pick, um, the non-alien and non-predator, which one of those might be coming sometime in the year. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm very excited. Um, I, we do know what, uh, the pick for next episode is my pick that I've been wanting to talk about on this podcast for a very long time. We are talking about my boy Calvin in the movie life from 2017, the movie that is not a Venom prequel, but it totally could have been. Um, totally could have been. They they had me fooled. I thought it was. I thought it was going to be. I mean, it, it's right there. We'll we'll get into it uh, in the episode. But uh, yeah, so I'm very excited to dive into a new theme. Garrett, what are you working on right now? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd, uh, YouTube at Garrett McDowell. Uh, just published on my YouTube channel a glowing review of A24's newest film, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, so make sure you check that out. Uh, as far as podcast goodness, uh, I have a Star Wars podcast called Scum and Villainy. Um, but I actually, the podcast that I recorded before this uh, was with my buddy Bailey and Noah from back home. Uh, they have a podcast called the Strictly Conversational Podcast, and they asked me on to talk about horror movies and uh, kind of the idea of elevated horror. Is it BS? Is it something that directors should strive for or maybe go away from? Uh, so we talked about maybe some of our favorite examples that fly in the face of that kind of idea. Uh, and then some that probably, you know, could have could have uh, taken a maybe a second pass on the, the script there. Uh, but that was a lot of fun. And that should be posted sometime soon. I don't know. I'm not the host of that podcast. So <laughs> whenever they <laughs> decide to post it, um, I'll probably tweet out links and, and things like that on Twitter. So, yeah, follow me there. Yeah, of course. Make sure you are up to date on everything that Garrett is working on. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore daddy disco. Um, I also host another podcast, Breaking Waves. Um, We just wrapped up season one of that where we interview creative artists out here in L.A. It's good fun. We talk about music and other things of that nature. Um, I just guested on the Certified Forgotten podcast, talking the Monster Project, so keep an eye out for that. And also the Pod and Pendulum podcast, talking Curse of Chucky. Those will Mm -hmm. be, or that one is out now, so you can go listen to that. (laughs) But... That will go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday, so make sure you're subscribed so you do not miss an episode. And you can follow us on social media at Bloody Blunt's Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs> <laughs>